you're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. Check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. So, I looked up a, um, an article on the Gospel Coalition. It was a blog written by a gentleman by the name of Mark Rogap. I don't even know if that's how you pronounce it, but it was April 9th of last year, 2019, and he wrote an article about the grieving that he and his wife were experiencing when they lost a child. And I pulled a couple segments out, and here's what he said in regards to his grieving. He said that they were missing, the missing element in our grief was a familiarity with lament. Lament being heartfelt and honest talking to God through the struggles of life. Mark found that while grieving, instead of giving God the silent treatment, falling into either despair, saying, I can't do this, or denial, everything's fine, lament encourages us to talk to God about our struggles so that we can reaffirm our trust in Him. Simply stated, lament is prayer and pain that leads to trust. I really like that. And so today, we're going to see really God's relentless hand of judgment. If you could just summarize chapter 2 in a few words, it is God is angry and, and pouring out judgment. He's angry. And so what I also want us to see in this is that while these things are unbearable and maybe daunting or heavy or weighty, the Lord provides room for lament. He provides room for lament. I appreciate how Mark, this writer, puts it later in the post. He says, Laments are not cul-de-sacs of sorrow, but conduits for renewed faith. Laments are not cul-de-sacs of sorrow, but conduits for renewed faith. So I want our faith to be renewed and how we face and enter into the pain and the sorrows of even our day and our time. Here's what I want. I want us to see God's good purposes by learning to understand how to lament, how lament is useful in times of this great struggle, and that it's not a cul-de-sac, constantly just going around and around and around, but a conduit that is tapped into the reservoir of God's eternal love. Lament is good. It is helpful. It is useful. It is needed. And so as we work through this, we're going to see different ways of God's good purposes for us and how lamenting reminds us of those good purposes. And so first we'll see in the first nine verses of God's good purposes that are expressed in his anger. We'll see secondly in verses 10 through 13, God's good purposes in our sufferings. Third, God's good purposes in his word, that will be in verse 14. Fourth, in verses 15 through 17, God's good purposes as the world hates us. And then last, the fifth one would be in verses 18 through 22, God's good purposes in our appeal to him. If you're taking notes, I'll make sure and announce those clearly as we walk through them, okay? So first, God's good purposes expressed in his anger, verses 1 through 9. And I'm not, not going to reread the chapter again, but we notice right away the Lord is angry and there's a cloud over the people. I've mentioned this several times before and I want to do it again because I think it is necessary when we talk about the anger of the Lord. The anger of the Lord is not something that is conjured up out of evil, sinful desire or a sinful, wicked heart of God. God's anger is bore out of His nature, His character. God is love. And when God created all things, He created from a posture of love. He created human beings to be just like Him. That is unified. That is one. That is perfect unity and harmony. Just as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit work together in harmony, so we are as human beings to come together and act like our God and be like our God with one another. 
But the problem is, when we sin, now God's perfect love and holiness has to respond to it. And so his anger is born out of his righteous, holy love. Before creation, it's not that God is angry, it is God is love. And his anger came about after his creation rebelled against him. So his anger here is not evil, it's not like Hitler, but it is righteous, it is good. The problem is not that God is evil, but the problem is that we, that Judah, is evil and has sinned against her God. And so there's this cloud, this heaviness over Israel, or over Judah, excuse me. Think about that imagery for a moment. When God delivered Israel out of the hands of the Egyptians, it was by cloud during the day that he led them out, right? And by fire at night. And it was also this cloud that stood between Israel and Egypt, protecting Israel as they parted through the sea. But now this cloud that was so for them is now weighing over them. There's sorrow, there's anguish, there's suffering. And now in some ways, like the cloud was heavy on Egypt, now the cloud is heavy on Judah. And as God... The author is lamenting here. He's saying God has not remembered his footstool. And this footstool can often refer to Jerusalem. It can refer to the temple. It can refer to the ark. But the imagery here is that God is resting upon his city. He's resting upon his people. His presence is with his people. And even his hand of protection is with his people. But no more. No more is he with his people, but now he has rejected his people, at least for a time. See, this city, whenever I think about God and his footstool, I'm reminded of two different psalms. I'm reminded of Psalm chapter 2, and I'm reminded of Psalm chapter 110. Psalm chapter 2 talks about how the nations are raging and plotting against God's people, against David the king and against the kingdom. And the Lord laughs. He scoffs at the enemy's rage and anger against him. And why? Because they are weak. The Lord is strong and mighty. And so he tells his king, he says, Today you are my son, one whom I have begotten. Ask anything and I will give it to you. You can even ask of the nations and I'll give it to you. This is the blessing that God had over his people. You get to Psalm chapter 110, and it highlights how God has made all of his enemies a footstool. And so this picture here is that Jerusalem, this city of God, this city that beheld the temple, this is the place where God was resting. The Ark of the Covenant was there. God was for his king, was for his people. But the problem is not that God messed up and then that God somehow let down his, his armor, if you will, but it was that his own people, the one whom he loved, sinned against him, turned against him. And so now the Lord has left the presence of Judah. And so we see when we get down to verse 4 that the Lord has come like an enemy. Like an enemy. Right? That doesn't sound happy and exciting. That doesn't really sound like overly positive here. But this imagery goes back to Psalm chapter 7 where the one who does not repent, the Lord, it says, the Lord readies his bow and wets his sword, meaning he's ready to pull it out of the sheath and strike those who do not repent. So that's the same idea except the bow and the sword is not aiming towards Babylon, if you will. It's not aiming towards the nations who are coming against Judah, but it's aiming towards his own people. The crosshairs are right on Judah. And this right hand that was used, that used, was used by God to deliver Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, to deliver God's people over and over again, this mighty, strong right hand is now pulling back a bow, is now ready to draw a sword, is now not a hand of of comfort and protection 
or presence, but now it is a hand that is a foe. The very hand of God is now against his own people. And because of this, when you get to verse 5, you see a multiplication of mourning and lamentation. Mourning and lamentation. So I want to take a minute here to really define some terms. I had to use some help of brothers in the city, other pastors in the city. I, I read dictionaries, I read commentaries, and I was like, man, the, these words like mourning and lamentation are so close in meaning. If you open up the Hebrew words, lamentation and mourning, they're the exact same word except lamentation has one more letter. It's like, this doesn't help at all. And then I went and I, and I looked up, okay, let's see what the definition of mourning is. It says to lament. I'm like, this doesn't help anymore. But there's some distinction between these words. And Pastor Seth over at the Way Church, I appreciated him, so I'm going to give him credit for this. Mourning and lamenting comes in a response to grief. So let me hit on grief, what grief is real quick. Grief is the motive of our mourning. It's the motive of our sorrow. Think of the motive being somebody really close to us dying or passing away. Or in the sense of Judah, losing their city, losing the temple, losing the presence of God. They are grieving. That is the motivation for their mourning. Mourning is a common human experience. This is where humanity shares in the pain of loss and weeping. And you'll see sackcloth and ashes. And you'll see humans in general mourning the grief that has occurred. But then there's something unique about lamenting when we're talking about lamenting as far as the scripture is concerned. Lamenting, to narrow it down, is God's covenant people seeking their covenant God amidst grief. God's covenant people seeking their covenant God amidst grief. This is where the line in the sand is drawn. This is the distinction between the world and between those who are God's people. And so, here's what I want you to see. There's a little bit of breathing room in this chapter. I know it just seems like God is just coming down really heavy on Judah, and he is. He's like an enemy, right? Readying the bow. But then, the writer says, mourning and lamentation have been multiplied. God is giving Judah room to properly grieve what is going on, to look towards the hope that is ahead. Jesus perfectly fulfills what is lacking in Judah. He fulfills Psalm chapter 2. He is greater than King David. When the Lord looks at his people, when he looks at the rage of the nations, he laughs because who sits on the throne? King Jesus. And anything that King Jesus seeks or desires or wants, the Father gives to him as a heritage. David is not good enough. Solomon is not good enough. We know for sure King Jehoiakim, the last failing king of Judah, was not good enough. But the only one who is perfectly right is King Jesus. And King Jesus also fulfills Psalm 110 in that after Jesus died and rose from the grave, he then went to the right hand of the Father and sitting at the right hand of the Father, he kicks his feet up, making his enemies a footstool. And so God, through Christ, is no longer against us. The right hand that is a right hand of foe here has, is now a right hand of blessing forevermore. Jesus is our friend. He is our king. He is our savior. And he's taking the Babylons of our heart, the sin of our heart, and he's making them a footstool for his feet. And he's inviting us into his presence even while the nations are raging. Who is the Lord against? And who is the Lord for? I think these are good questions that we need to ask right now. Who is he against and who is he for? 
Let me make it really uncomfortable. Sometimes we go, well, you know, God must be a Republican because he hates abortions, and so maybe he's against them Democrats. Or we might go, well, you know, God must be a Democrat because he wants social equality, and maybe he's against Republicans. Or maybe God must be for Black Lives Matter because he hates injustices. So maybe he's against those who claim that all lives matter. Or maybe God is for all lives matter because he does think that all lives matter. And maybe he's against black lives matter. Who is God for? And who is he against? I think we need to start steering away from putting God into our own paradigms of thinking. God is not like us. We are finite beings with limited capacities. We need to stop talking about God in terms that are, that are man-made, but we need to see him in terms of who he is and what he ultimately says about himself. I want to let you know these hard things I'm saying is me preaching to myself as well. I've put God in a box. But I'm realizing we have to come away from that. God is above us. We often think that we are above God. He's small, we're big. No, 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 he, he's big, and we are small. God's not a politician. He's not an activist. God is God. He is God. He's not impressed with us as we go to the, the voting booths. He's not impressed with us in our activism. Look, Judah received no sympathy from God just because they were Jews just because they, they swung a certain way politically, or that they were God's chosen people. When, he, when Judah sinned against God, God was against them because they sinned against God. So you want to know who God is for? He's for those who are in Christ Jesus. Simple. And you know who he's against? He's against those who are not in Christ. Christ Jesus. Let that sit in for a second because we in this room are family. We are in Christ Jesus. This is family. God is for us. And there are those outside of us that are not in Christ Jesus and the Lord is against. Think about this. Those, some of those who we love deeply that are lost, that are not in Christ Jesus, they are the ones who are being made into a footstool under the feet of Christ. They are enemies to the cross, enemies to the gospel. It's a heavy thing to hear. It's a hard thing to hear. These are people who may share the same political position as you, may think the same way about social issues as you. But at the end of the day, there's no justice for them outside of Christ. And I'm telling you this because we assume that God is safe. We assume He's safe because we, we side with some sort of political or social agenda or persuasion. That's kind of where we're at. We often forget to ask what God thinks about anything or how He feels about these bad things that happen or what he wants to see take place. We replace God with ourselves as the focus. Here's what I think. Here's what I want. And so then we begin to define what is good, right, and just and really leave God out of the equation. We throw it on there. We tack God, God on every now and then, but really, it's about us. We assume God's safe. We assume that God likes our form of goodness, our form of rightness. But we have to be honest. No matter how impressed we think that God is with us, if we don't have Jesus, there is no relief. There is no reprieve. There is no justice in the courtroom of God. Our goodness, no matter how good it may seem, are nothing but filthy rags before our King. We need to 
Remember what Jesus has done to keep us and turn to him in thanks. The pain and the sorrows of the world are, are the worst it will ever be for those who are in Christ. Like this is the closest to hell we will ever be for those of us who are in Christ. And for those who are outside of Christ, this is the closest to heaven they will ever be. And we need to spend our time and our energy, much of it, crying out to God, thanking Him for His mercy, and weeping, weeping for those who will be facing the unrelenting wrath of God. So what does this have to do with mourning and lamenting? We, as the people of God, need to be leading the way in grieving loss of life, tragedy, injustices. We also need to be leaving the way in mourning, coming alongside one another and a broken world and entering into the pain together. We become sort of isolationist. But really, we are to mourn together. And then we are to lead the way to lament the hope that there is in Jesus Christ. Are we looking at the grief of society and everything that's around us and the world? They can only do this, grieve and mourn. They don't know how to lament because they have no hope beyond what is this side of heaven. Their form of justice ends with the laws of man, not with the law of God. And so we as believers can't stop with this side of heaven. We have to have a grander vision, a bigger picture, a bigger hope that resides before us that is found only in Christ Jesus. Jesus paid for our sin on the cross. Remember, God is just. He's not overlooking injustices. And so we need to enter into the pain. We need to be reminded of what God has done and continue to point the pain and the sorrow and the grief of our time to hope in Christ Jesus because the world around us is floundering and they don't know what to do with it. I think we have work to do within the family of God. Do you know how to grieve the present sorrows? Do you know how to mourn? Do you know how to lament? I'll be honest, I mean, I I don't. This isn't something that was practiced in my home. This isn't something practiced in church bodies I was really a part of. I mean, we all felt it individually, but we never felt it as a family. And if we did, we didn't really know what to do about it. But I think we need to start evaluating and thinking, man, what do I know how to do this? Do we know how to actually lament? And I would say, just as God has given Judah space to lament in their time, The Lord has given us space to lament our time. We have time to actually think about what the Lord is doing. And I would say the Lord is doing this. Think of the the heaviness and the sorrow of our time, not as just like this punishment or this horrible thing, but think of it as an invitation. It's an invitation from the Lord inviting you to grieve with hope. Maybe think of it this way. What is the Lord teaching you about Himself during this time of grief? What hope is the Lord showing you through this grief? This is how we can frame our lamenting. What is God teaching you about Himself? What is He teaching you about this grief? And then we need to do something with it. How might you express that hope to both your family in Christ into a lost and dying world. We lament with hope. We point towards the hope that is set before us, not to just keep it to ourselves, but to bring it before our family, as we see here, before the the covenant people of God, and also before a lost and dying world. 
And so we see the good purposes of God, even in His anger. The good purposes, God's good purposes in our sufferings, verses 10 through 13, we then begin to see really the act of mourning, the sackcloth, the ashes. Sackcloth made of goat's hair, and it was used as a, as a garment, as a sign to mourn death. And really, it's just this expression of, of grief, of death. All Judah, all Judah is in mourning here. All of them. All the elders, all the young women. The point of that is saying everybody in Judah is mourning. And mourning practices, or, or yeah, they were common in ancient times. So you would have sitting on the ground, sprinkling dust on the head, wearing sackcloth, wailing, weeping, tearing of the garments even, cutting oneself, even fasting. These were all signs of mourning, practices of mourning. And so here is Judah. You can just physically see the picture of just dust flying in the air, weeping, wailing, crying out together. And they are weeping in such a way that their stomach is turning in them. Verse 11, it's just churning. It's a very graphic depiction here. The, the my stomach churns can also be translated, I am torment, tormented within. Or I am in torment within. Or my bowels are burning. We all know that after some hot wings, right? So my bowels are burning. The picture here is, that was a bad time for a joke, sorry. The picture here is torment within the human body because of the destruction, and not just destruction, but the destruction of even seeing children dying in the streets, children dying in the bosom of their mothers. It is excruciating, if you will. And so what we see is a severe cause and effect of sin. I don't think the elders and the priests and the kings woke up one day and, you know, said, hey, I want to sin because I think the repercussions of my sin will cause the death of my children and anguish and suffering. I don't think that's what happened. I think they were just so blinded by their sin that they followed the Lord and didn't even think about the cause and effect. Now they're feeling the gravity of it that's even costing the lives of the next generation. And then this kind of this hopeless statement in verse 13 that your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Seems like Judah is beyond healing, so it seems. But there will come a time when Jerusalem, the temple, the walls will be restored. The people will come back to this ancient city. When we fast forward into the Gospels of Jesus, when Jesus comes in his earthly ministry, he, bestow, he beholds a restored city. He sees the walls that have been rebuilt. He sees the temple before him. But even so, even though the brick and mortar will be fixed again, that does not fix the problem of sin. And Jesus never even alluded that everything is fine because the city has been rebuilt. Rather, you see in the last days of Jesus, he walks into Jerusalem and he says these infamous words, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. That was out of Matthew 23. I mean, even Jesus walking into a restored city and temple still sees the problem very clearly. He says those words because the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes of the day, just like it happened in the time of Judah, have begun to rebel against God and sin against God. And so you see this just like a broken record on repeat of how God's people, even though God physically restores a city, they sin against Him again. And so Jesus really enters into mourning in this final week of His life. Mourning the elders, the priests, that they've missed it again, but they, instead of listening to God, they would stone prophets who bring the Word of God, rejecting them, rejecting God entirely. 
And Jesus would carry this burden. And just like Judah feeling the burden physically, so would Jesus. He would carry this burden not just spiritually, he would carry it physically. He was stressed beyond comparison. I mean, he had to have sleepless nights. We know at least the night before he died, he didn't sleep at all. I'm sure he tossed and turned. We know in the garden he was sweating blood. After he was arrested, he underwent 49 lashes. He held a crown of thorn. He had nails through his hands and his feet. Collapsed lungs, dislocated joints, internal bleeding. Jesus felt the physical weight of sin. And it led him to sorrow. But his sorrow led him to real hope. Jesus didn't stay camped in sorrow and was hopeless. There was hope set before him. And he knew that that sorrow would be lifted as he endured the cross. And so though, at, though the sins of man may be as vast as the sea, the blood of Christ is eternally far-reaching beyond the sea and able to touch human souls and forgive sin and provide eternal healing. The question almost seems rhetorical. Who can heal you? It's kind of a joke that you thought Babylon can heal you, but the ultimate answer in Scripture is that Jesus is the only one who can heal you. God is the only one who can heal you, Judah. How about us? Does our stomach churn at the devastation of sin in our society? Do we just feel feel it deeply about the brokenness that is around us? Does it cause any sort of grief or sorrow or feeling whatsoever? Maybe if you're going, well, I'm just kind of indifferent to it or numb to it, you have to ask yourself, why? Sin is wreaking havoc. It's wreaking havoc all over the church, all over our nation, all around the world right now. Why do we feel indifferent? Why do we feel numb to it? I think we need to feel the burden of the world that has fallen around us and to truly enter into the pain. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying go get enslaved to it and try to feel the burden, like just keep lapping it on so that I can actually feel it in a heavy way. I'm talking about entering into the pain, not ignoring it or pretending like it doesn't exist. Jesus entered into the pain. He entered into the sorrow and he was rightly able to process its weight and rightly move forward in hope. We have the Spirit of God living inside of us. We have the ability in the power of Christ to rightly process the weight and the burden of this world, to feel it in a healthy way and to move forward in hope. We're a knee-jerk culture, aren't we? I know that we don't like to take time to process anything. We've got to do it now, 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 now. And I am so guilty of this. I have to, like Chanel has to remind me, hey, you know, time out. Because <laughs> I just want to jump onto it right away. Because, man, if I don't do something, if I don't say something, if I don't act now, then it won't get done. But I think what we need to do is slow down, respond, and process hope. Enter into the grief, slow down, and then let's process this hope together. And I think we do that by we acknowledge the suffering. We acknowledge the pain. We acknowledge the grief. And then we need to enter into it. Not stiff arm the pains and the troubles of the world and bury ourselves in Netflix and whatever else we got going on in life. And then we need to process, process this grief in the light of the gospel of Jesus. Which means for some of us to process, we may need to be cutting some things out in life that are heavily distracting. Maybe like the internet. And just have a piece of paper and a pencil and a book and think and write. And then we need to respond to one another and to the world with hope. 
the key and point of this is to recognize that we are unified in our grief, unified in our processing towards hope. We need to do this as a family. I may be showing up to an event this evening where I get to be put on the stage or the platform as representing uh, Christians and representing pastors, but you understand, I'm not the only person who is called by God to make disciples and to be an ambassador for Christ. All of you are as well. We need to enter into this together. We all need to give an answer to the hope that resides before us. And the only way we know hope is through God's Word. And so we see God's good purposes in His Word. Verse 14. You see this rebuke where Judah bought into the lies and the vision of false prophets and and their ways and their words. And by doing that, they ultimately rejected the word of the Lord. You see that in 2 Chronicles in those final chapters where Josiah comes in and the word of God is found and he reads it and everybody loves the word and they, they obey and God relents of his wrath in that time. But then after him, the kings to come in Judah reject God's word. It doesn't seem as appealing to them anymore. And so what Judah is recognizing in the moment, in grief, is that they again were in the wrong and the Lord is in the right and they are reaping really the fruit of disobedience and believing words that were not true words. Believing false visions that gave no real promise or hope. And so the pain and suffering that they are enduring in this moment is leading them back to the true and right Word of God. So it has purpose. Jesus comes onto the scene as the Word made flesh. We see that in John chapter 1. We often wonder why is Jesus referred to as the Word? It's significant because when you see the Old Testament, over and over again, the Word of God comes, thus saith the Lord, over and over again. And there are times when Israel, God's people, responds in obedience, but there are many more times where God's people respond in rejection to His Word. And so Jesus comes in again, here comes the Word of God, the same Word that spoke all things into being in Genesis chapter 1, the same Word that was spoken through the prophets, that's spoken through the book of Lamentations, that same word of God now is embodied in physical form. His name is Jesus Christ. And yet, God's word again is rejected. But here's the difference that we see in the Old Testament when God is rejecting, or when, excuse me, when his people are rejecting his word versus when Jesus shows up on the scene. We see here in the Old Testament that the Lord is punishing His people at the rejection of their word, of the word. But in the New Testament, what we're finding is that instead of God punishing you and me, He now punishes His Son, Jesus. The word comes down, is made flesh. We reject Him, but in exchange, He takes the punishment for us. This is the Gospel. And so when Jesus goes to the cross and he's dying on the cross, being punished not for his sin, he doesn't have any, but for the sins of everyone that is around him, you see two different types of responses. You see a prideful response, a prideful, arrogant response. You see that from the priests, the elders, saying really that Jesus was just a fraud this whole time. But then you see another response a mournful, humble, and yet hopeful response from others that said, truly, this was the Son of God. And this is the Gospel. That the Word made flesh died for our sins, and His Word is alive and active because He overcame the grave. By putting our faith in Jesus, the Word made flesh, we have a life and a living hope that God's words are true. They're still true today. So what do we do with it? The world is hearing all sorts of words, words right now. Excuse me. You know this. 
You see the, the different words that are being thrown out there in response to all the pain, the injustices, all the solutions to fix the problems. It's just a big mess of words coming from the world. And people are buying into those words. We need to ask ourselves, how does the world define the problems of the world? And, and then how does the world define or describe solutions to those problems? And then how do those problems and solutions match up to what God actually says in His Word? If you struggle to know what God is actually saying, and you cannot articulate it, but you can articulate what the world is saying, you need to check and make sure that you're not buying into and believing into false visions from false prophets of our day, if you will. Look, the problem with words is an ancient problem, as ancient as the garden itself. The enemy continues to use crafty words to pull you and me away from the word, Jesus himself. We have to, as believers, we have to ground ourselves unashamedly in the word of God. We need to do that. And let's be honest, some of us are ashamed. We're ashamed of saying out loud that we're Christian. We're ashamed of saying out loud that we love the Bible because we know how the culture has reacted to the church doing wrong to them. So we don't want to be identified as what the church has done wrongly. So what we do is we almost, in an unashamed way, like tiptoe around that we're Christian and tiptoe around that we love the Bible. But are you really ashamed of the Word? And if so, then you might be ashamed of Jesus. Do you think it was easy for Judah to say before the Babylonians, their captors, that God is for His people, that His Word is truth and life? Don't you think that would be difficult to say right here? The Babylonians are standing over them. <laughs> Where's your God now? And they're they have to wrestle with the truth. God is for us. Doesn't seem like it. He's not. He is for us. It seems almost embarrassing, right? But that's the problem. That's the problem with our heart, is that we have become embarrassed of God's word. We have become embarrassed of God. We've decided to rather follow words and visions that are more suitable to our desires and pleasures. Things that make us liked in the world. So church, we need to do this. I know our culture re reacts heavily to legalism, and I know legalism runs big time in this city, but I'm going to say this, and some of you are going to go, man, is this legalism? It's not. Ready? Read your Bible. Pray your Bible, live your Bible. Read your Bible, pray your Bible, live your Bible. We need to be staunch about this as believers. And if you need help in doing that, that's what we have our community for. That's what we have community groups for. We are to disciple one another in the Word of God. You need to extend and ask for that help. And we are called to be disciples in life together, making disciples. If we are unwilling to do that, then we need to repent as a church. We need to be more in tune with the words of God than the words of the world. And I feel that many of us are more aware of the world words out there than we are the words inside here. And there is a cost to following God's word. There is a cost. And we have to accept that. Jesus died an unjust death. He was scorned by the world for following the truth. Do you not think the same will happen to us? Perhaps today is a time for us to ask ourselves again, kind of this call to discipleship and following Him. Are you willing to be made into a disciple of Jesus, to believe and trust in His Word, to take up your cross and follow Him, 
even if it costs you your life? We ask that question every time we baptize somebody, but maybe we need to ask it right now again. Maybe we haven't been honest with ourselves. And so as we do that, we know the world will hate us. We know the cost that when we submit ourselves to his word, that our friends that we love that are lost, the world around us will begin to stiff arm us and move away, unlike us, unfriend us. But we have to understand there's a cost there, but there's good purpose when the world hates us. Verses 15 through 17. It says that the enemies were coming around hissing at Judah. It's a sign of disapproval, a sign of rejection. It's kind of laughing at them, mocking them, scorning them. But God has a purpose for this time, you see in 17. See, Judah can mourn knowing that there is hope ahead. Even while Babylon goes, where's your God? We have the upper hand here, not your God. But God has purpose this time, verse 17. God doesn't allow Babylon at all to take any credit for the devastation that's going on. Nobody's in control here, God says. I'm in control. Judah sinned against me, and this is my, this is my uh, discipline towards her. Babylon, don't get so prideful in thinking that you have the upper hand here. I'm using you as a means to mature my people, to sharpen my people, to discipline my people. And so God has purposed this time and we see that this time was prophesied about back in Jer- the book of Jeremiah, chapter 27. But even if you go further back to the book of Genesis, chapter 3, God shows us that the enemies will be allowed to bruise his people. So this is nothing new from what we see in the beginning. But ultimately, that bruising would be met with God turning and crushing the enemy. And so in this time, in verse 17, the enemy rejoices over bruising Judah. Look at us. We're the ones, Babylon is saying. But there's a greater plan that Babylon does not yet see. They're not privy to. They weren't brought into the divine boardroom of God and God said, okay, hey, here's how we're going to work out salvation. Babylon, you're going to play this role, you're going to play that role. No, they didn't have any knowledge of this. God had a purpose and a plan. Judah will come back in, the city will be restored, but there's even more than that. As I mentioned in Genesis 3, the enemy will continue to bruise God's people throughout Scripture. You see that as God's enemies, the nations come against Israel over and over again, bruising their heel, bruising their heel, and then God delivering his people, crushing their head, crushing their head. It's a greater, perfect fulfillment of that. That's found in the gospel of Jesus. Jesus will come, and he will come to earth. He will be mocked by his enemies, scorned by his enemies, bruised by his enemies. And will say to him, hey, come down off that cross if you are the Son of God. Mocking him like Babylon mocking Judah. But the enemy doesn't know that Jesus would take the scorn, the pain, the bruising as the means to ultimately crush the work of the enemy. Jesus enters onto the playing field of sin and death and he defeats them on their own turf. And he does it perfectly and eternally. This is why Jesus was not ashamed to endure the cross and why he's not ashamed to call us brothers. It may have not been the very popular road to take for Jesus in that time. He was lonely, but it was necessary to save sinners. It was the path of mockery that would ultimately win over hissing sinners. And this is something that angels long to see, that the heavenly beings long to see, that when Christ saves and sets captives free, the heavenly hosts 
rejoice. Babylon may have a time of rejoicing over Judah, but it pales in comparison to the eternal rejoicing that comes through the gospel of Jesus when sinners are turned from enemies into friends. Believer, the world is going to despise you. They're going to despise you for your belief, for your faith in Jesus, for your faith in his word. The world is going to hiss at you, but you have to remember what Peter tells us, that we are to follow in the example of Christ's sufferings. Jesus suffered before us so that we could follow in that example. That means we take the narrow path, not the wide path, the not-so-popular path, the path of suffering and pain because the world hates your Jesus. Hate him. And while the world may hiss and come against you, It is no matter to you that you lose all your favor in the world because at the end of the day, your loyalty is to Jesus and in Christ there is much rejoicing. Remember, you are to be among the world, to be in the world, but not of it. Jesus did not side with the world, but he also gave his life for the world to win her over to eternal life. It's a paradox, really. It doesn't make any sense. You and I are not to side with the world, but we are also to love her, enter into the pain with her, remain faithful to the, wor- to the word of God despite the world mocking us with the purpose that we might win our enemies over. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, reminds us that if Jesus had a Facebook account and a Twitter account, by the time he made it to the cross, he would have been completely unfriended, unfollowed by everybody. And yet, as the world unfriended him, Jesus never unfriended sinners. Are we joining? Are we joining in the movements of the world to gain followers, to gain likes, to gain notoriety? Are we afraid to put truth out in our platforms of influence because we don't want to lose that popularity, notoriety, or friendship? Are we finding the easy road of dealing with problems because we don't want to be hissed at by the world? Are we avoiding telling our lost friends and family about the gospel because we fear that we will be cast out from them? Between you and your lost friends, who is doing the rejoicing? Think about your lost family or friends. Between all of you, who is doing the rejoicing? Are your lost friends and family rejoicing because you have jumped ship and gone away from God and His church? Just like Babylon, yes, we have the upper hand. Or, are your lost friends looking at you confused because you are rejoicing and your love and hope found only in Jesus, even while, even while you're losing friends, you're losing popularity. I think we really need to consider the audience that we are appealing to. To whom are we appealing? Is it the audience of the world, like Judah was doing? Or is our audience the one and only Savior, Jesus? And so the final part, God's good purposes in our appeal to Him. 18 through 22. Verse 18 talks about really crying out, pouring out your heart. You see this kind of transition, all these hard, devastating realities of Judah's suffering and cry out, pour out your heart. And notice what he says. It's basically pour out your heart in prayer to the Lord. I define prayer as communion with the Lord. The people, Judah, lost communion with their Lord, and now Jeremiah is calling them back to that communion with him, but through repentance, through confession. And so it's a higher priority for Judah in this moment of suffering to be known and not rejected by God than it is to be known and not rejected by Babylon. At this point, you're starting to see the shift from being concerned about what Babylon thinks to being concerned about what God thinks. 
to, to from being in uh, cahoots with Babylon to being in communion with God. And so the author makes it known that godly appeal to the Lord is done in His presence and is lifted up to Him. It's a fascinating statement there. In His presence. Because this book is about God's presence leaving His people. He, he has not remembered His footstool. He is not protecting them. He is allowing Babylon to go in. But it reminds us that God is not confined to brick and mortar. God is not bound up in brick and mortar. But He is everywhere. He can be found anywhere and everywhere. And so even though He is absent in the sense of His right hand of blessing is upon them, He is still present because He's still God. So make an appeal. And so why should they appeal? Why should Judah appeal? Because again, God's holiness is not safe. It's not safe. Starvation in the streets. 20 prophets and uh, priests are being killed. Young and old are lying in the streets together. 21. All whom the author held and raised, all those who are close to him are now destroyed. Verse 22. God's holiness is not safe. God struck down Judah in intense ways, not because he's evil, but because he is really ferociously holy and Judah was ferociously sinful. But again, God gives Judah reason to lament with hope. <laughs> the Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. And it is. It means that we deserve to die for our sins. Jesus, knowing the penalty and the wages for our sin, decided to come, write a check, and cash it in on our behalf. He took on the penalty and the wages of our sin. And He doesn't do it just for one or two people, but He does it for all of His people for all time, both forward and backwards on the timeline, meaning He died also for the sins of people like Abraham, for the people like Jeremiah, as well as people like us. So here's what Jesus had to do on the cross. He had to both absorb, really, or take on the fullness, the ferociousness of man's sinfulness for all time, forever. Not just part of it, not just some of it, but even the sins that we will commit, He takes that on Himself. And then also, He takes on the ferocious, holy anger of the Lord that was meant for sinners for all time. The anger and pain that we see in lamentations that we sit here and go, man, this is heavy and weighty. This is just a small drop in the ocean of God's eternal wrath that burns against sinners. This is nothing compared to the wrath that Jesus endured on our behalf. How do you think Jesus would endure this? This is in his own strength and his own might. And that's hard to understand, right? Jesus is God. But understand, he may be God, but he also took on full humanity. And he didn't take the easy way out. He was human in every way, yet he did not sin. So how did he endure? Prayer was a form of endurement for him. It was a way of enduring, excuse me. Jesus modeled prayer. Jeremiah is telling him, pour out to God. Jesus poured out to God. He taught us in prayer how we are to align our will with His and really remain in sweet communion with Him regardless of the time. When Jesus was in prayer, we could see how He remained steady. How He remained steady on the task at hand and how He would not divert from the goal of dying on the cross. He had a mission that was set before Him and not even the devil could tempt him away from that mission. He was constantly seeking the will of the Father, being reminded of the will of the Father in prayer and pursuing the cross. Prayer was so vital to Jesus. Had he not entered into prayer, he knew temptation would drive him away from the mission. This is why you see in the final hours, Jesus 
uh, tells the disciples to pray as he was praying so that they would not be tempted. In Jesus' prayer in the garden, hours before he dies, you can hear the human anguish, the pain, the grief, the sorrow, crying out to the Father, even if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, your will be done. He wanted relief. He wanted relief from the pain of physically dying. He wanted relief from his enemies. He wanted relief from death. It's not like Jesus showed up and was like, man, I'm sure excited to die. There was real pain with it. But as he entered into prayer and communion with the Father, he, was re- he kept focused, and he kept focused on the hope that was set before. Had Jesus not made it to the cross with the full vision of the Father's will, we would be sitting here this morning hopeless, dead in our sins. And here's the kicker. It was the purpose and the plan of the Father to crush His Son. It was planned on purpose that Jesus would be completely crushed by the Father for our sins. Remember, behold, the Lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. That means before creation was even in appearance or was even here, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit decided on a divine plan that Jesus would lose his life for sinners. And he still followed through with it. What divine love and grace, church. So God has purposed this time of suffering and pain. He is refining us in this time. The enemy is not in control. God is not punishing us. He has punished His Son for us. And the world seems to keep winning and, and hissing at the church. But we must not lose sight of the real victory in the cross of Christ. Suffering is okay. And it's necessary. We know in the history of the world that when the church faces opposition and suffering or even persecution, she begins to be purified and starts to flourish. You begin to see those who are really following Christ and those who are really following themselves or their own desires. The church is forced in these times of suffering to really trust in God and not trust in self. It forces us to see that we are inadequate in and of ourselves and we must have the power of the Holy Spirit residing in us. If we can learn anything from the present time of suffering, it is this, that the Lord is constantly calling us back to Himself. And so it's time for us to respond in prayer. In prayer. I think this may be a weak point for us here at Redeemer. And that's not a bash on anybody. That's not insulting anyone here. I think it's even a, even a highlight of my weakness as a pastor. I think we need to be more prayerful when we encounter grief, when we encounter anything. We just need to be prayerful. Many of us are being tempted by the world and we are quick to jump ship from Christianity because the church has failed, and we, we don't want to be seen like that. But we have to put our hope in the Lord. It's time for us to enter into communion with the Lord and not the world. Prayer is even a form of lament. Prayer forces us to pray with real, authentic emotion, and it forces us to pray the will of God. It forces us to see the hope that is set before us. Prayer will also help us endure the hardship of obedience during these turbulent times and lead us to ultimately trusting in Him. If you wonder if you trust the Lord or not, just stop and pray. Pay attention to your words. 
what it is you'll say and you won't say. You begin to see real quick if you actually trust in him or if you actually know his will, if you actually know his word. So here's some, here's some ways I would say we can consider prayer. As I would say, commit to reading your Bible, commit to praying every day. No questions. Commit to being in communion with the Lord. I don't care if you have to structure their time or if it's just intentionally uh, weave through your day and the rhythms of your day. I'm more of that kind of guy because I can't sit still for very long. But praying constantly without ceasing. Pray God's word. Open God's word. Read God's word. Know God's word. Pray God's word because it is there you will find the will of God. You will find true hope, true joy. And I would say commit to even praying a lament of hope. When you pray, acknowledge and see and feel the weight of brokenness around you, but then seek the Lord through that brokenness. Don't just ignore the pain. Don't just ignore the sorrow. But enter into it and pray hope. Don't complain about your neighbors. Lament their brokenness to the Lord. Here's a couple other practical ways and then we're going to be done here. Commit to coming here on Sunday morning. It's a very, very practical way. I have a team of people committed from 9 a.m. till 10 a.m. to just come up here to pray for unity, for God's word to be preached, and to just pray that the enemy would flee from this place. And so I'm inviting you and your family and the chaos of it all to come up here and just pray. Come and pray. We can't move forward as a church. We can't engage darkness as a church. We can't speak truth to the world as a church if we are not in communion with the Lord, if we are not willing to pray. Maybe even come and when you go to your community group, spend time, more time praying with your group, lamenting with hope in your group, entering into the sorrows. Stop having shallow prayer requests and shallow prayers but really seek the Lord. And I'm not saying that as a judgmental thing. Like your words need to be lofty and high and fancy. But I'm saying genuinely seek the Lord. Genuinely seek Him together. Can you see God's good purposes in our grief? Can you see how lament is useful in times of great struggle? Can you see that Lamenting is not a stunt in your growth and understanding the gospel. But it is really a, a conduit that's tapped into the reservoir of God's eternal love.